What is Christianity and who is Christ for us today? That is the question that the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer posed in a letter written to a friend from a Nazi prison cell in April of 1944. And one year later, he would be sentenced to death by execution because of his public opposition to Hitler. Bonhoeffer witnessed the German church capitulate to Nazi rule, and what made it worse is the church let it happen. He watched as countless Christians succumbed to the political captivity of the church because they were far more committed to their nation's political policies than to their faith in Jesus. And I would suggest that if you're interested in learning more about this episode, you might want to listen to my interview with Professor Charles Marsh on the Resound podcast, which you can find online. But Bonhoeffer began to think, if this is where traditional religion gets you, then what might a religionless Christianity entail? He went on to write, we are approaching a completely religionless age. People as they are now simply cannot be religious anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious aren't really practicing that at all. They presumably mean something quite different by the term religious. What then is religionless Christianity? Now, this expression has often been misunderstood by imagining a religionless Christianity Bonhoeffer was not embracing atheism. He wasn't envisioning a secular society stripped of God or a world without faith. But nor was he abandoning Christianity and suggesting that you should take your faith private and practice your own personal spirituality or what we might call today being spiritual but not religious. On the one hand, I understand that phrase. It expresses people's deep frustration with religious institutions and leaders. But on the other hand, I dislike the phrase spiritual but not religious because it tends to veer in the direction of a do-it-yourself kind of spirituality that more often than not gives you license to do whatever you wanted to do anyway. No, that's not what Bonhoeffer meant by religionless Christianity. He wondered what it would mean to be a true follower of Jesus without the trappings of religion. And by religion, he meant that sort of thing that's passed on by tradition or family or culture, but does not actually lead to a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. So what bothered him was that people could confess the so-called right beliefs. They could observe the so-called correct moral code or they could follow the accepted practices and behaviors of cultural Christianity, and yet their lives provided no evidence whatsoever that they were following Jesus rather than their own personal or political agenda. And this was especially troubling in the midst of World War II, where supposedly Christian nations were going to war with one another, and everybody assumed that God, of course, was on their side. So what is Christianity? And who is Christ for us today? That is an urgent question, and it is just as relevant today as it was in Bonhoeffer's time because of the ways in which we've seen the gospel has been distorted and the church has been corrupted. 
But if you are among those today who are suspicious of organized religion, if you are tempted to give up on the church, well, then I've got good news for you. Jesus hated empty religion even more than you do. And that becomes especially clear in the text that we look at today on this Palm Sunday. Jesus challenged the traditional religion of his day. And many would suggest that that is precisely why he got killed. So today, at the beginning of this Holy Week, on this Palm Sunday, as we remember the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem during the final week of his life, I'd like us to consider three questions. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, number one, where did Jesus go? Number two, what did Jesus do? And number three, why does it matter? So let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 21. You'll find our passage printed on page 826 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, on that original Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem claiming royal authority for himself. According to Zechariah chapter 9, everyone would have understood this event in royal terms. Behold, your king comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So Jesus claims royal authority and yet he subverts the people's expectations of what it means for him to be a king, what it means for him to be the Messiah, because notice how he enters the city. He doesn't come on top of a gallant white war horse with an army behind him, which is in fact the way that Alexander the Great entered the city of Jerusalem in 322 BC. 
No, he comes not on a horse, but on a donkey. You use horses in processions. Horses lead chariots. But what do you use a donkey for? A slow, stubborn beast of burden. You use donkeys for doing manual labor, for carrying out chores. And so you see, Jesus doesn't come in pride, with pomp and ceremony. No, he comes to us in a humble and unpretentious way. He doesn't come to terrify or to oppress, to force people into submission. No, he comes like the donkey itself. Jesus comes to help to bear our burdens, and to take them away. And as he enters the city, people cut down palm branches and they throw their cloaks on the road. They, in effect, give Jesus the red carpet treatment. And they call out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna comes from the Hebrew. It simply means, save us. Save us now. So Jesus is greeted as a Messiah. He's greeted as a king. But where does Jesus go when he enters the city? What I want you to see is that when he enters Jerusalem, there's one institution he visits. The very first place Jesus goes, the very first thing that Jesus does is go to church. In a very provocative way, the New Testament commentator Dale Bruner suggests that wherever we see the phrase chief priests and scribes, we should translate that as senior pastors and Bible teachers. That changes things, doesn't it? So where do the senior pastors and the Bible teachers hang out? They hang out at church. So the first thing that Jesus does is he goes to church. The first thing he does when he enters the city is he goes to the temple and he challenges the authority of the temple. So think with me for a moment. What did the temple represent? Well, the temple in Jerusalem was a rectangular building, and the innermost sanctuary was a perfect cube. It was a great big box. But people understood from the very, very beginning that God could not be confined to a box. They knew that not even the highest heavens could contain him. And so the temple simply represented the place where God chose to dwell in the midst of his people. It's the place where his presence could be experienced. And so the temple was a place of beauty. It was a place where sacrifices were offered so that forgiveness might be bestowed. It was a place of prayer and instruction where people could learn about the scriptures, the word of God. And it was a place where the annual festivals were celebrated, which marked the key events in Israel's history, and the most important of which, of course, was Passover, which was the festival taking place the very week that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And especially in Jesus' day, people were hoping for a new exodus. That just as God had delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt so many years ago, so now, in their day, God would free them once more from an oppressor, from the Romans who were occupying Palestine, and that, they would, that he would make Israel a great nation again. That's what they were hoping for. So it was uh, a place for forgiveness, for healing, for cleansing, for instruction, for prayer, for celebration and community and feasting. And importantly, the temple was also a microcosm. It represented in miniature what God would eventually do in and for all of creation. So the temple formed the very heart of the people's faith. This was the symbolic center of Judaism. 
And this is where God was accessible in a special way. So what went wrong? Well, the problem was that people in Jesus' day treated God as if God could be put in a box. They acted as if God could be manipulated and controlled to give them what they wanted. And so as a result, the temple had become corrupted and had lost its meaning. And so do you see the temporary, the contemporary significance of this event? You see, this is exactly what we're dealing with today. Many would say that the church today has fallen prey to the political captivity of both the left and the right. And if we're not concerned about that, we should be. The gospel, likewise, has been distorted by people with an agenda when it comes to hot-button issues like race, sex, class, and gender. And likewise, we should be troubled by the ways in which the church has been compromised by sex scandals and abuses of power, by financial mismanagement, and by cults of celebrity. There's far too many leaders and institutions who are focused on nothing more than perpetuating their own self-importance rather than genuinely caring for others. And so it's no wonder that so many people have dropped out of church and don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. But I would suggest that it's not just that the church has been compromised. Rather, many regard the church as irrelevant. Back in the fall, I attended a Halloween party that was hosted by a family that we know through one of our kids' schools. And at this party, I met a fellow dad, and we got to talking, and the conversation turned to what we do for our living. And as I've mentioned before, oftentimes when I tell people that I'm a Presbyterian minister, that proves to be a conversation stopper, but not this time. This dad hung in there. He didn't turn around and walk away. He wasn't offended by the church because he thinks that the church is irrelevant. And he said to me, sort of in condescending terms, well, I really think it's great what you do, you know, behind his sunglasses. I think it's great what you do. You know, you're there to provide comfort and solace for people uh, when they're going through a hard time, but don't expect me to show up at any of your services. So I expect he's not here today. <laughs> because the church is just a crutch for the weak. So many think that the church has been compromised and corrupted, but plenty more just think it's irrelevant. There's no need to participate. Uh, it doesn't serve any purpose in our lives. But if you're turned off to the church because of its cultural compromises or because of its perceived irrelevance, well, then I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does. See, secondly, what did Jesus do? Well, verse 12 tells us that he drove out the people who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And interestingly, the word that Matthew uses for drove out is the same word used to describe Jesus casting out demons. So that shows you how seriously Jesus takes all of this. But what exactly was the problem here? Well, the temple was divided into several sections. And the outermost section of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is the place where people from any, different ba any background, regardless of their race, their religion, their ethnicity, this is the one place where they could come and worship and pray. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is as close as they could get to the inner sanctuary. There was actually a sign in the Court of the Gentiles that said, you must not pass any farther if you're a foreigner upon pain of death. So this is the one place that 
non-Jews, Gentiles, could worship the one true God. But in Jesus' day, the court of the Gentiles had become a veritable zoo. This courtyard was lined with pens and cages that contained animals, sheep, oxen, pigeons, doves, so that as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem for the big annual festivals, they could buy an animal to offer it up for sacrifice. Now, the problem is that many of the pilgrims to Jerusalem didn't have a lot of money, and they couldn't even afford to buy a mere pigeon or a dove. But the temple authorities came up with a solution to that. They developed a mob-like loan business where they said, if you don't have enough money, we'll extend you credit at exorbitant interest so that you can buy the requisite animal in order to make your sacrifice. And then the temple authorities got a cut of it. Now, the other problem is that the people in the temple refused to accept foreign money, especially if that coin bore the image of Caesar. But they came up with a solution to that one too. They set up currency exchange booths in the court of the Gentiles, and they were willing to change that foreign currency for a Hebrew shekel, all, of course, at a price. Now, it's hard to get our mind wrapped around just how disorienting this would have been. So let let me give you a a parallel example. If the temple represented the, the heart of the people's faith, if this was the symbolic center of their religion, Let's use a different example. Let's, let's say that you wanted to visit the, the White House one day, which represents the seat of American democracy. And as you get off the tour bus and you step out on Pennsylvania Avenue and you look out over the front lawn of the White House, you see that it's littered with street vendors and loan sharks. And then you realize that after being gouged for your money, every member of every branch of the government is on the take. You see, that essentially is what was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling pigeons. He pours out the coins. So just imagine the scene. You would have, you would have heard all the coins jingling on the ground. You would have heard vendors yelling out and screaming at one another. You would have seen the lambs and the pigeons making a run for it before they were offered up for sacrifice. And then you would have seen the temple police and the Roman guards scrambling to try to figure out, well, who's responsible for this chaos? Who caused all of this commotion? It was quite a scene. Now, there are many people who study this passage of Scripture, and they seriously contend that this was the sign that Jesus was, in fact, a radical revolutionary. They believe that this episode marks the beginning of his revolt against the Roman occupation of Palestine and against the priests who were cozy with the Roman establishment. The only problem is that Jesus was arrested sooner than he anticipated, and therefore he didn't actually have the opportunity to stage the uprising that he had planned. But that can't possibly be right, because we know that Jesus taught his followers that They should love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them, not try to blast them and destroy them. His goal was to usher in a whole new structure, a whole new order to human society, which was called the the reign of God, the kingdom of God, which meant that his plans relegated the freedom of Jerusalem and the establishment of a free, independent Jewish state 
of peripheral importance. But I want you to notice something else that's often underappreciated. Notice that when Jesus overturns the tables and turns the chairs upside down, he doesn't fly off the handle in a fit of rage. It's not as if Jesus can't control his anger. In fact, in the parallel passage in the Gospel of John, John tells us that when Jesus cleanses the temple, he very slowly, methodically, deliberately makes a whip of cords in order to drive the people out of the court of the Gentiles. In other words, there's no indication here that Jesus was physically rough. Jesus doesn't hit anyone. You couldn't even say that he engages in the destruction of property. The most you could say is that he did some serious rearranging of furniture in dramatic style. In other words, this was a form of peaceful protest, not unlike spilling tea that had already spoiled into the Boston Harbor. So it's a form of peaceful protest. And through it all, Jesus doesn't say a word until finally he speaks and he quotes Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Now that first part comes from Isaiah 56, where God says through Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, Isaiah goes on to say. And yet here's the court of the Gentile, the one place where people from all over the world, no matter what their race or religion, could worship the one true God. And now that courtyard had been turned into a carnival sideshow. But what does this term, den of robbers, mean? You've turned it into a den of robbers, or you could translate that as you've turned it into a hideout for thieves. Well, may, it may suggest that the temple had turned into a nationalistic stronghold, that the temple became the center out of which people were plotting a radical, violent revolution against Roman occupation. And long before our own political struggles, the New Testament commentator, Dale Bruner, once said that we always need to be on guard against turning our churches into base camps for nationalistic ambitions, rather than as gathering places to worship the one true king together with people from all nations. Dale Bruner wrote, the church must constantly ask herself if she has been politicized too far to the right or too far to the left, thus diluting her unique and urgent mission of Christocentric proclamation, prayer, and praxis. But there's more to it than that. You've probably heard this expression before. My house is called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. But have you ever gone back to look and see what God says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7? Because the context is really rather telling. In the larger context, God says to his people, you steal, you kill, you commit adultery, you lie, you run after false gods, you worship Baal, and then you come into my house, you come into my temple and say, we're safe, we're delivered. In other words, people were acting as if they could do whatever they want outside of the temple, and as soon as they come inside the temple, they can be assured of God's love, forgiveness, and grace, and then go right back out there and do all the same abominations, God says, in his sight. 
And you see, this is exactly what concerned Bonhoeffer in his own day. People may have affirmed the quote-unquote correct beliefs, but there was no evidence that they were committed to following Jesus in their daily lives. Their beliefs might have been orthodox, but it was a dead orthodoxy. And what Jesus reveals here is that he is vehemently opposed to all forms of religious hypocrisy, and especially to people who use their religious power and position for their own personal gain. Well, we've considered where Jesus went, and we've considered what Jesus did. But why does it all matter? Well, look, in verse 14, no sooner does Jesus drive the scoundrels out of the temple when he welcomes in the blind and the lame and he heals them. And according to Luke chapter 19, Jesus spent the rest of that week teaching in the temple daily. But when the senior pastors and the Bible teachers saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and they heard the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they turned to Jesus and they said, do you hear what these kids are saying about you? And I love Jesus' response to this. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the senior pastors and the Bible teachers. And he says, hey, have you guys read Psalm 8? Of course they've read Psalm 8. So in case you missed it, that's an insult, right? Have you read Psalm 8? Well, what does Psalm 8 say? Well, there the psalmist identifies the cooing, the babbling of babies with the praise of God. And what's so astonishing here is that Jesus redirects that praise that was intended for the one true God towards himself. He's not just the son of David. He's the Lord of David. Now think about this. Jesus was a strict monotheist. Jews would not ascribe the glory of the one true God to any other, and yet Jesus accepts the worship of the people. So for those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, this should put an end to all debate. Jesus accepts for himself the worship that is due to God alone because he and the Father are one. The praise that comes even from infants and children is appropriately directed towards him. But do you see what's going on here? Jesus receives the blind and the lame and he heals them. He offers instruction in the temple day by day and he accepts the worship of God for himself. Jesus spoke and he acted with the understanding that he was the true temple. Everything that the temple was supposed to be and to do was fulfilled in him. That's why Jesus could later say, destroy this temple that was made with hands and in three days I will build it, I'll build a new one a temple not made with hands. And of course, at the time, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. It was only after his resurrection on the third day that they realized that he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true temple. He is the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. He is the place where God can be experienced. Everything that Jesus did was what the temple was supposed to do. So here's another analogy. As you look at what Jesus did, did, how he spoke, the way in which he acted. A close parallel might be someone running around today issuing, people's, issuing people driver's licenses 
without making you have to go through the whole rigmarole of the DMV. He offers forgiveness by merely saying the word. And he doesn't require people to jump through the hoops of ritualistic cleansing. He's the one who provides instruction in how to rightly interpret and apply God's word, the scriptures to our lives. Think about what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, right? Other people might have said this about God's word, but I say to you, he provides the definitive instruction and he claims no other authority than his own. And he's the one who cleanses and heals and celebrates with all the wrong people, with the blind and the lame, with the poor and the marginalized, and even with the Gentiles. And for Jesus, there is no need for another sacrifice within this temple because he will be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices within the temple that Jesus establishes. There's no need for priests because he's the priest to end all priests. And there's no reason to worship God in one particular place because now as the true temple, God dwells in the midst of his people wherever Jesus is. So Jesus is the true temple. He did everything that the temple was supposed to do. But if that's all true, how should we respond to this at the beginning of this Holy Week? Well, if you are already a Christian, you've got to realize that Jesus entrusts you with a specific mission. When you put your faith in Jesus, you yourself become a mini temple of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Jesus now dwells in you. Now his presence can be experienced in your life directly. And together, corporately, we are living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. We together, corporately, are a spiritual temple. We are called to be and to do what the temple was always meant to be and to do. We're the ones who are called now to extend God's forgiveness and his gracious welcome to any and all in Jesus' name. We're the ones who must celebrate God's coming kingdom with feasts and parties. And we now are a microcosm of what God will do eventually in and for the whole world. Our life together is meant to provide the world around us with a picture. It might be just a glimpse, but a picture of what God will accomplish when he brings his kingdom to bear on this world fully and finally. But if you're not yet a Christian, if you are dissatisfied with organized religion, if you're fed up with hypocrisy, with people who say one thing and do another, well, then that's good because you've come to the right place. You can take comfort in the fact that Jesus called all forms of false religion into question. Christianity really isn't a religion. And this is what Bonhoeffer was getting at. Christianity is a radical reorientation of one's entire life around Jesus. But this is not the same as what might be called being spiritual but not religious. Jesus doesn't do away with organized religion altogether. He doesn't do away with the church. He founded the church. Jesus didn't write a book, but his lasting legacy is he founded a community. He directly appointed 12 apostles to to serve as the foundation of the church that he would build. And that doesn't mean that he did away with all religious practices, although he certainly simplified them. And he added his own. 
He taught his followers how to pray. He established baptism in the Lord's Supper. He instituted the Last Supper during this final week of his life, something that we'll participate in in just a moment. And he didn't suggest that we should take our faith private, but rather he said that we need to take our faith to the world. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to share what we have found in and through Christ with those around us. And so the true test of religion is not what has been passed down by family, tradition, or culture, but rather, have you radically reoriented your life around Jesus? And if not, how do you do that? Well, what we need to realize on this Palm Sunday is that the way in which Jesus comes to us today is the same way in which he came into Jerusalem on that Sunday. Jesus doesn't come on a war horse, he comes on a donkey. He doesn't come in pride and power. No, he comes in humility and weakness. He doesn't come to terrify and to oppress. But like that donkey, to bear our burdens and to take them away. In other words, Jesus will not use force to gain entry into your life. You have to willingly receive him. You have to willingly receive him as those children did by saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the Lord of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, on this Palm Sunday, we may very well be frustrated, disappointed, dissatisfied, and turned off by the church. And we thank you, therefore, that Jesus was the ultimate religion challenger who calls all forms of false, empty religion into question. And therefore, we pray that you might enable us to respond to him by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, who is the true temple, in whom we find forgiveness for sin, in whom we find true instruction in your word, in whom we can celebrate the coming of your kingdom and await its consummation and fulfillment. We, enable, we pray that you would enable us to do all that by your grace, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.